Hello, and welcome back to Venture Studio. I'm your producer, Kevin Weeks. We have a very special two-part episode coming at you starting this week. Our guest is Roger Ver, entrepreneur, Bitcoin investor, Bitcoin evangelist, and voluntarist. If you think we're just going to talk about Bitcoin on this episode, think again. If you're a fan of Venture Studio, please subscribe on iTunes and do us a favor and leave us a five-star rating and a review in the iTunes store. As always, you can connect with us on Twitter at Venture Studio, and you can listen to prior episodes at VentureStudio.org on iTunes, on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn. Roger Ver, nicknamed Bitcoin Jesus, is an interesting guy. Credited as the first person in the world to invest in Bitcoin startups, he's been the leading voice and catalyst in the Bitcoin ecosystem for years. Why? Well, according to his website, rogerver.com, Bitcoin is the most important invention in the history of the world since the internet, and if you don't already know about it, Google it. In part one of this two-part series, Dave and Roger discuss why people should care about Bitcoin, a few companies that are accelerating mainstream Bitcoin adoption, and why Bitcoin is a non-political means to freeing up the entire world's economy. We take a quick foray into macroeconomic theory, government policy, and then, for good measure, we'll talk about George Washington, Vietnam, and World War II. Without further ado, let's head on up to the Venture Studio office with Roger Ver and Dave Lerner. In the office, baby. Roger, thanks so much for joining us. Happy New Year to you. Thanks so much, and Happy New Year to you as well. Let's start by telling a lot of the folks who are listening who know about Bitcoin uh, on the surface, much like myself, but give them an, an idea of what you think Bitcoin is. How would you describe it? So I think Bitcoin is the first time in the entire history of the world in which now any human being anywhere on the planet can send and receive any amount of money with any other human being instantly basically for free, on New Year's Day, from any country to any country, just like that, and they don't have to get permission from any corporation, from any bank, or most importantly, from any government. And that's a real fundamentally changing world. You know, that, that changes everything. Before, you know, I'm, I'm in St. Kitts at the moment, and I believe you're in New York. If I wanted to send you money on New Year's Day, we'd have to get per- I'd have to get permission from the local bank, We'd have to get permission from the St. Kitts government, have to get permission from the U.S. government, and have to get permission from whatever bank you're using, and maybe a couple of banks in between. It would take several days, and it would cost probably 50 U.S. dollars to do that. Whereas now, you know, right here through Skype, you could hold up your smartphone, and I could scan it through Skype and send Bitcoins right over Skype from from St. Kitts to New York. And nothing like that's ever existed ever before. And uh, that really changes changes everything for everybody on the entire planet. And we're, we're starting to see that happen by... Uh, the amount of people that are starting to use Bitcoin in their daily lives. I was doing some uh, reading on the year-end reviews of what happened with Bitcoin in 2015. Apparently, transactions per day have doubled. It's become more global. There are more users around the world. The volatility, the price decreased. You know, is it fair to say that we're seeing the ecosystem grow steadily? What are you seeing? Uh, actually, I don't think it's fair to say that we're seeing the ecosystem grow steadily. I think the the pace at which Bitcoin is being adopted is increasing. So there was more adoption in 2015 than there was in 2014, and more than 2013 and the year before. So th- the rate of new people starting to use Bitcoin is getting faster and faster, and I think 2016 is going to be the fastest and best year yet. So let's go back. I mean, Bitcoin hasn't been around more than 
you know, six or seven years. How did you happen upon Bitcoin in the first place? So um, I've been living in Japan uh, 10 years. You know, there's not so much English in Japan, and there's not too many other people that maybe would self-identify as libertarians or volunteers in Japan. So I was looking for a way to not feel quite so alone there, and I stumbled across a podcast called Free Talk Live, which is hosted by a couple of volunteerists or libertarian types. And uh, I would just go about my daily life, you know, on the trains and wherever, listening to that podcast in Japan. And for the first time in late 2010, I heard the owner of that podcast mention Bitcoin, and it kind of went in one ear, went out the other. And I, I spent just a couple minutes Googling it, but didn't Google it quite enough. And uh, then the same host on the same podcast mentioned it again a couple of months later, maybe in uh, January or February of uh, 2011. And then I Googled it again, and that's when everything clicked together. Um, because I've been, you know, my background is in doing technical sales for Cisco routers and that sort of thing. And, uh, my hobby since I was a teenager has been studying economics mm. and that's right where Bitcoin comes together is economics meets computer science. And when I understood the characteristics of Bitcoin, I realized that this is the best form of money that the world has ever seen. And I, I could understand the, the technical side of it well enough to understand that this can't be shut down, that the only way to stop Bitcoin, even if the powers that be in the world today don't like it, the only way to stop it would be to shut down the entire internet in the entire world and keep it turned off. And uh, we saw exactly what happened uh, you know, in the Arab Spring when the governments tried to censor the internet from all the people there. It, it caused the revolution to happen even faster than it might have otherwise. Right. So uh, I, I don't see a... I don't see it shutting down the entire internet and the entire world as a, a plausible option for, for anybody at this point. And uh, here we are, Bitcoin's getting you know, more and more people using it all across the world, and it's becoming more and more useful in their day-to-day -day lives as well. Remarkable. And then you know, something obviously clicked for you because you became one of the world's greatest evangelists of the technology, the most active angel investor in the ecosystem. Tell us a little about the companies you backed and why. Yeah, so as I mentioned, when I was a teenager, I started studying economics, and I guess my my political views and economic views, you know, before that were just, you know, run-of-the-mill standard, you know, standard Joe from America that didn't really think or pay too much attention to that sort of thing. And the more I studied and the more I learned, the more I realized that government intervention into economies anywhere causes misallocation of resources and prevents the world from being as wealthy as it otherwise would have been. And the more I learned about these things, the more frustrating it became to me because I realized that, like, politicians aren't bad people. They don't have evil intent. Like, almost never do they have evil intent. Like, there's just a few times in history where maybe some sort of actual psychopath got into power. But, you know, 99.9% .9 of them have good intent and want to do good things, and they want the world to be a better place. And that's why they became politicians is because they mistakenly think that that's the right way to make the world a better place. And when I started reading all these economics books, I thought, wow, if only people in, in, in power and in government knew these things, they'd have completely different government policies and they'd be, you know, hands off the economy and the whole world would be a better place for it. So right. I felt like, you know, I, I need to, to, to go and tell, tell people about these things because it's, it's everybody in the world, regardless, you know, Democrat, Republican, conservative, liberal, they want the world to be a better place. Like there's no doubt in my mind that everybody has good, almost everybody has good intentions right. there. And I think if more people understood economics and understood the, you know, the role of money in the economy and, you know, money's not just about money. Money is about transmitting information about what goods should be produced with what other goods. And without prices to transmit that information, people have no idea whatsoever. So that's why 
you know, in, in communist Russia where the government was trying to centrally plan everything, they had no idea if the, if the street should be paved with asphalt or paved with gold because they didn't have this pricing mechanism to transmit that information. And that's why prices are so important and, and, and not, you know, having price controls are so important. And anytime anybody, you know, interferes in the free market, it causes a misallocation of these resources. So anyhow, I got interested right. in all of this and I thought, uh, Maybe mistakenly, in, in hindsight, I thought the right way to spread that was uh, was maybe through politics and I actually ran for California State Assembly uh, in the year 2000 as a libertarian candidate and wow. promised to repeal as many laws as I possibly could uh, and basically get the government out of the way of businesses so that they can you know, get to making the world a better place through the free market. And I, I lost interest in that a decade, almost a decade and a half until I discovered Bitcoin again. And then I realized that Bitcoin is kind of the non-political means to freeing up the entire world's economy and, and allowing people to engage in business with anyone else anywhere in the world without having to get permission from, from somebody else. And that's a wonderful, wonderful thing for the, everybody on the planet. Um, and so I got involved in Bitcoin full-time and dived in. And I had started my own business in Silicon Valley, so I had some resources from that. Uh, the first business I ever invested in was a, a company called BitInstant out of New York, that made it so that people could buy bitcoins uh, at every Walmart and 7-Eleven and Walgreens and all sorts of places. I think like 50,000 locations or some you know giant number like that. And before that company, it was really, really, really difficult to get bitcoin. You would basically have to do an international wire transfer to Japan. I see. You started with BitInstant and went from there. But you were, you were doing even more than angel investing. You were evangelizing. You were backing the Bitcoin Foundation. You were really someone who was putting his, his own resources out there early, uh, and I assume you were buying a lot of Bitcoin as well. Yeah, I, I did both those things. I bought a lot of Bitcoin, and then I spent uh, most of my own resources on, on helping promote this technology and platform because I was so excited about the ways it would change the world. And actually, uh, I guess uh, an interesting piece of background to explain just how excited I was about this is when I heard about Bitcoin for the second time and Googled it and it clicked and I, I put all the pieces together, I became so excited about Bitcoin that I discovered it in, in the morning, maybe you know 10 or 11 a.m. And I stayed up that entire day reading about Bitcoin and stayed up all night the next day until around noon the next morning. And I'm someone who needs a good night's rest every night. And I stayed up all night reading about it until close to noon the next day and then went to bed. And then woke up after like only an hour and a half and read more wow. about Bitcoin. And I stayed up all night the next wow. night, woke up, read about it again. And this went on for close to a week. The only time in my entire life I went on you know, that small amount of sleep, only sleeping maybe an hour and a half, two hours a night. When I woke up again, it was right back to Bitcoin. Uh, I was just so excited about this because I realized this is what the world has been waiting for. And uh, we're starting to see you know, that coming true where there's you know, millions of people around the world are using Bitcoin and tens of thousands of new people are signing up for it every single day. So uh, it's, there's more reason to be optimistic about Bitcoin today than, than there was when I first heard about it. Amazing. And what companies do you see today that uh, excite you the most? Who's doing the most interesting work in Bitcoin? Uh, one of the things that I think is the most interesting is a, a company called BitcoinHiveMind.com which is basically a decentralized prediction market. Uh, whereas there were things like in trade before and other prediction markets, but as soon as they started allowing markets in anything at all interesting, governments, regulators came and said, no, you can't do that, or no, you can't do this. But prediction markets are an incredibly, incredibly useful tool for, for humans to figure out you know, what events that we take today, what, what is the likely outcome of those events tomorrow. 
and having that information in the form of a market where you can harness the wisdom of crowds and people are willing to put real money on the line, that's a, a super, super useful tool for, for all humankind to more efficiently allocate resources around the globe. So Bitcoin Hivemind is one that uh, I'm really keeping an eye on and excited about. Okay, I'll so. check out that one. What else in terms of the building blocks of the ecosystem uh, do you use and find like, you know, this is a well-run organization? So when I first got involved in Bitcoin, almost everybody was coming at it from the libertarian, voluntarist, free market advocate point of view. And I think everybody that's at that point of view is probably already involved in Bitcoin at this point, like the vast majority of those types of people are, but we're a very small minority in the world. So the next step is to get people that don't care about monetary policy and don't care about economics and don't care about any of that sort of stuff. They just want to live their daily lives. And there's two businesses that I think are doing a fantastic job of bringing those types of uh, people into the world. One is called purse.io, so www.purse.io. And it allows anybody, uh, especially in the U.S., to easily get a 20, 25, even 30% discount off of absolutely anything from Amazon. So uh, actually, I'll show you an example. This just arrived last night. This is my new drone that yeah, I bought. Wow. I bought on Amazon, and I was playing with it last night. Um, I saved 25%. I saved almost $300 by paying for that drone in Bitcoin using this website, purse.io. And just about everything in my house, actually, I look around at the moment, like the majority of it I bought on Amazon using Bitcoin, using purse.io and saved 20-something percent on it. I'm, that's an absolutely huge savings. I bought a new iPad not too long ago and saved a, a couple hundred, almost $200 on that as well. And I think that's the perfect tool for people that don't care about economics and don't care about monetary policy and don't care about computers. If they hear that they can save, you know, 25% on their next TV or their next smartphone or something like that, boom, sign, the, sign them up. They're, they're ready to go. So A marketplace where you can buy anything, any household item just with Bitcoin. No cash. Right. And the goods are actually shipping directly from Amazon. It's, it's goods okay. directly from Amazon. So I, I have like my... My Amazon, you know, gift receipts are sitting here from Amazon. So the way it works is there's lots of people around the world that have a bunch of Amazon store credit, but they don't necessarily want anything from Amazon or they don't live in a country that Amazon ships to directly. So they go and wind up uh, buying the items for people that do live in a country where Amazon ships directly. And then uh, this company, Purse.io, acts as the escrow agent. And once you receive your drone or whatever it is that you bought, uh, they release the bitcoins to the other person. So it's a win-win situation for everybody involved. And it's a, a fantastic tool. And tens of thousands of people have signed up for it so far. And I, I'm sure uh, you know, they're going to be you know, bigger and bigger numbers every week because who doesn't want to save money on right. everything from Amazon? Absolutely. For the folks that are listening and taking all this in, what would you say some of the best resources for people – to get familiar with Bitcoin are, and then to you know create their own wallets and get involved in the ecosystem. Yeah, I think uh, Bitcoin.com is a fantastic uh, website that I'm involved with uh, directly and trying my best to make it a, an easy-to-use resource. Uh, the first step, I think, would be to go over there and uh, download a wallet. And then once you have a Bitcoin wallet, then you'll need to buy Bitcoins. And uh, if you're in the U.S., Coinbase is probably the easiest way to do that, but there's a bunch uh, of different ways to buy Bitcoin listed over on Bitcoin.com as well. My other piece of advice is uh, if you start using Bitcoins, there's two types of Bitcoin wallets. One is more like a like your physical wallet in which you hold you know pieces of paper money in your wallet in your pocket. And then there are other Bitcoin wallets that work more like a, like a bank in which they're holding the Bitcoins for you. And you have to trust them that they're going to send the Bitcoins wherever you direct them to send the Bitcoins to. But in the Bitcoin, in the history of Bitcoin, there's been a couple of times where there have been some big problems where people lost a lot of Bitcoins. But just about every single time, 
that that's happened is when people were trusting somebody else to hold their Bitcoins for them. So my advice to everybody who's listening is hold your Bitcoins yourself in your own wallet and you're a lot less likely to run into trouble or problems in the future. And we have the wallets listed on Bitcoin.com divided in that exact way. So there's wallets for your cell phone, there's wallets for your desktop, and then we have a whole category that's called bank wallets, which are exactly what they sound like. It's wallets in which you're trusting somebody else to hold your Bitcoins for you. And uh, just like with anything else, don't put all your eggs in one basket. Don't put all your Bitcoins in one wallet as well. If you're holding a substantial amount of Bitcoins, divide them up between a number of wallets. And that way, if something were to go wrong with one particular wallet, um, you still have the other wallets. So if, if people want to dip a toe in, there's nothing like starting to use it and experience it for yourself. I know I've bought a bunch of Bitcoins, etc. over the years. Get a few wallets, start buying up some Bitcoins, and maybe get on purse.io and buy a few items. And is, is that a good way to get a feel for what, how it works? Yeah, there, there's another great way to get a feel for how it works as well. There's another company that I think is great for driving mainstream adoption is a, a company called FoldApp, F-O-L-D-A-P-P.com. They're doing something very similar to what Purse is doing, but they're doing that with a Starbucks gift cards and Target gift cards. So using this app, you can instantly, while you're waiting in line at Starbucks, you can instantly buy a Starbucks gift card with Bitcoin, but you're not paying the face value for it. You're getting a 20% discount. So you can pay $8 worth of Bitcoin to get a $10 Starbucks gift card, and you can buy as many of these gift cards as you want. And then you can, you know, if you're a regular Starbucks drinker, Here's a way to save 20% on every single future Starbucks purchase. And I'm sure there's you know, tens, if not 100 plus million Starbucks drinkers in, in the United right. States. So I think uh, the biggest problem is people just don't know about these tools yet. So uh, I'm doing my best to spread the word because a 20% discount at Starbucks, that's a substantial right. discount. Especially when one coffee is you know, $5 or something. That's a dollar off your, your coffee right no, there. That's going to add up. That's going to add up. I like how the community is going mainstream from you know, the libertarian vanguard that started all this and got involved to you know, let's, Starbucks. Get, let's get everybody 20% <laughs> off on their coffee. It's great. So let's shift a little bit and get into your background, which we touched on a little bit. I've read a bunch of your posts online, some of the videos you've put out. And as you said before, you really started to study economics. As a young person, you ran for political office, obviously. And then it sounds like in, in some ways, without realizing it, you were waiting for something like Bitcoin to emerge. Talk a little about your philosophy. What is voluntarism? So actually, my, my philosophy's changed a lot in the last two decades. So I started studying economics, and I realized that the free market and people having control of their own lives and their own economies, that's definitely the best way to produce the most physical wealth for the most people around the world in every country, not, not just rich countries, but in every country around the world. Uh, sweatshops, you know, so-called sweatshops, help those people in those countries. If they didn't have the sweatshop job, they would have an even worse job. So like, yeah, I feel bad for people in, in countries that are in those positions, but by boycotting these, com uh, these companies or forcing their factories out to close down or do different things, like that's just making everybody worse off again. But like, if you just hear about it on the surface, you think, oh, maybe those things are horrible and we need governments to control this. But if you actually study the issue, like, no, governments need to get out of the way. So anyhow, mm. It was from studying economics that I, I became an advocate for free markets. But just more recently, within the last couple of years, I started studying kind of the, the philosophy of it a bit more. And I think maybe it's even easier to understand that what governments are doing are not okay from, from that perspective than the economic perspective. Like bo both have such amazing synergy. Like from the economic standpoint, what governments are doing is destructive. And from the moral standpoint, what governments are doing are, are, is, is, is horrible and destructive as well. And one 
real big change in, in, in my thinking, I suppose, that just came within the last year or two after I discovered Bitcoin was that political authority, like in the form of you know, presidents and congressmen and this and that, isn't actually real. It, um, it's just kind of, there's no moral basis for it, I suppose, is the way to, to, to say that. And mm-hmm. the reason I say that is it can be explained pretty simply is that a person cannot delegate a right that he doesn't have. So if I don't have the right to you know, come over to your house and take your stuff and boss you around, um, I can't delegate the right to somebody else to go over to your house and boss you around and take your stuff. And, right. you know, in, in my, you know, when I went to public school in the U.S., they taught you that, you know, this is a, a representative government and that politicians are our representatives. But if a representative can't have more rights than the person he's representing, and I as an individual and every single other individual doesn't have the right to tax or control or regulate or do any of these things, where does government get its authority from to do these things? So it, it's not that there are representatives. They're just acting as, as our slave masters, essentially. And mm-hmm. they're using guns and, and force to threaten people to, to do things. And morally, that's wrong. And economically, it's incredibly destructive as well. But uh, it was just much more recently that uh, there were a couple of authors that, that pointed out these ideas, one of which uh, has a bunch of just amazing YouTube videos as well. A guy named Larkin Rose, um, R-O-S-E is his last name. Uh, L-E-R-K-E-N is his first name and has some amazing YouTube videos that before I, you know, had read his book called The Most Dangerous Superstition and watched some of his YouTube videos, like, it hadn't ever occurred to me that an individual can't delegate a right that they don't have. And if, if, if you can't delegate a right that you don't have to begin with... Where does government get its authority for, from? And, and the, the eventual answer is that it doesn't have any authority. And, and he points out, and I think it's a really, really important point that nobody in, in you know, my, my traditional schooling ever pointed out to me, is that the morality of a situation or the use of force in a situation is determined by this, the actual situation and what's involved, not by the person using the force. So just because someone puts on a badge and, and, a, and a uniform and is wearing a hat, doesn't mean that their use of force is any more legitimate than if I were to go and use force in the exact same situation. The, the legitimacy of the use of force is determined by the situation itself, not by who's using the force. Well, let's pause right there because this has been the way of the world for millennia. People grow up in a country and it has a government. And if you go back to the source or the genesis of each country, I mean, every one of them will have a different story. And it could be very flawed in many instances. Uh, let's talk about the, the U.S. It was basically English settlers who were throwing off the yoke of the king and what they felt was an unfair burden on them in the form of taxation when they were doing all the work, you know, their sweat and their toil. Shots were fired, there was battles, there were, there were wars, and from that emerged a new government which uh, was anointed by those settlers. They chose George Washington, let's say, as the first president. I've read that some people thought he should be king, and he said no. So you could say in that situation, in the early days, there was consent for the establishment of that government because the people who had fought we're now saying we're going to start a new government, but more more conforming to the way we want things to run. How would you how would you respond to that? So uh, another really interesting point that I never learned in you know any of my my formal education that the same you know author Larkin Rose pointed out is that by definition, like everybody in public school in the U.S. grows up learning that we have you know consent of the governed, and we hear that term over and over, consent of the governed, but 
by definition, if it's government, it's not consent. And if there is consent, it's not government. And I think it's worth taking some time to think about that, because if you consent to something, it, it's not government. You're just going along with it anyhow. So by definition, government can't be consensual. So there's, the consent of the governed is just a, a made-up lie. It, it, in reference to government, it, it cannot and does not exist. There is never ever – if there's consent, it's not government. And if there's government, there's not consent by definition. And, so, why, uh, and why is that? Elaborate a little bit on that. That Why is the existence of government by definition not consensual? By definition, government is is the use of force. It's telling it, government isn't asking anybody to do anything. It's telling people to do things. And as a, another favorite economist of mine, Thomas Sowell, pointed out, the difference between asking and telling is fundamental. It's the same difference between working for a living and being a slave. It's the difference between making love and being raped. Mm-hmm. So right. that's a really really important difference between <clears throat> right. between something being consensual and, and not. And, and so take us along this continuum. If that is uh, your view on the nature of government as coercive, by definition, not consensual, what is the logical best environment for humans to organize themselves? I don't know. And, and nobody knows, I think. But if we need to be free to figure out, and I suppose you could say that my morality stems from that I think all human interactions should be on a voluntary and consensual basis. And that's how everybody in all of their lives lives it every day. Starbucks doesn't force anybody to buy their coffee. Walmart doesn't force anybody to shop there. Everybody on their, in their interpersonal lives deals with everybody else on a voluntary basis. The only institution in the entire world that, uh, that deals with people on an involuntary basis are governments and, and common crooks and, and robbers. Uh, those are the only people that use force to deal with other people. And we, we realize that, you know, common crooks and, you know, bank robbers and those types are, are, you know, bad for the world. I think people are brainwashed from a young age in government schools to think that there should be an exception for government. And if you or I, you know, go and point guns at people and force them to do things, obviously we're bad people and do that. But if suddenly if people put on costumes with fancy hats and shiny badges and do the exact same thing, Suddenly, then it's, it's, it's not a bad thing to do, but no, it, it's still a bad thing regardless of who's doing it. What would you say the most coercive aspects of government are? Is it taxes? Is it the economic policy? What do you find the most objectionable? For me, I think the most objectionable part is, is war. And I remember being uh, actually a teenager, though. I was, I was reading, a, you know, I, I grew up in, in the U.S., like people, you know, support our troops and military, right. hoorah, and, and yeah. all that. And, and uh, I was reading a, another, you know, one of my favorite authors is a man named Murray Rothbard. And he pointed out that, the, you know, in, in the U.S., I think the draft ended, I don't know, in the late 60s, early 70s with the Vietnam War, but before I was born. But, you know, everybody around me kind of thought, you know, if, if there's a war and the government needs troops, it's okay to draft people. And if everybody around me was saying that, you know, that's what I heard around me. So I figured, yeah, I guess it is okay to to draft people. And this author pointed out that no, he pointed out that the draft is the moral equivalent of kidnapping and slavery. And I stopped to think about it for the moment. And like everybody learns growing up, kidnapping people is wrong and slavery is wrong. Like every, almost everybody on the entire planet's in agreement that those things are wrong. And then I thought about this some more. And I realized that there's this entity in the United States called the federal government that claims the right to kidnap and enslave every young man in the country at any time because 
they happen to decide that it's necessary to kidnap or enslave people, which is just a draft is simply a euphemism for kidnapping and, and enslaving. And if kidnappers and enslavers are bad people, maybe the U.S. government isn't such a wonderful mm. <laughs> benevolent organization after all. It's a bad organization, and it was it was frightening for me to 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 have these thoughts come into my mind. But the logic is there. And then once they kidnap and enslave these people, they force them to go off to far off lands and kill people that they've never met. So I think that's what I object to the most. It should be a pretty simple concept. Don't kill people that you've never met and know nothing about. Like that's a bad idea. Don't kill strangers. Don't drop bombs on people. Like it's but apparently when people put on, you know, costumes called military uniforms and they, you know, they think that they're just following orders. Somehow morality, they think, goes out the window, but it doesn't. Uh, just following orders isn't an excuse, and putting on a costume isn't an excuse either. Is there no form of just war? I think of World War II, where my, my uncle served. Is there no just war where a nation and its citizens need to stand up to a tyrant who's trying to enslave people and kill people? Do you see any circumstance where that would be legitimate? I don't think kidnapping and enslavery is, is, is ever legitimate. And, you know, people always hear about the chain of command and chain of command this and just following orders that. Maybe a big part of the problem is the chain of obedience. So if you have a commander, but people don't obey, you know, what if, what if all the Germans told Hitler, get lost, right? He'd just be a lone psychopath. Right. Uh, what, if, what if all the troops said, no, I'm not going to go kill people I've never met. No, I'm not going to round up Jews and send them off to camps. Like, I don't have a problem with that. What if people just said, no, I, I won't obey? And I, I think if people had this sort of mindset, there, there wouldn't be these wars on a grand scale. Right. And certainly people will have disagreements and arguments, and occasionally people will use violence to settle them. But it, it wouldn't be on the same sort of grand scale that we've seen uh, uh, I throughout see. history. I see what you're driving at. You're saying on the, on the individual level, many cultures, many people in many cultures have been brainwashed from early days. And if they would just wake up, it would be difficult, if not impossible, for these tyrants to rule them. If they just say, my life belongs to me, and I don't have to follow orders just because somebody working in a fancy building with flags out in front of it said so, I think the world would be a much, much, much better place, uh, just about indisputably. So, you know, all these people in the U.S. are arguing over, you know, Trump or Bernie Sanders or this and that. Like, I don't care at all. I've never met either of them. I don't think I'm ever going to meet either of them. They've, they know nothing about me in my life. And assuming I were still an American, like... Why should those people have any say over me and my life and my family that they know nothing about whatsoever? Um, I think it's incredibly presumptuous of them to think that they should have the say over anybody's life. And, you know, they'd think I was crazy if I sent them letters in the mail telling them how they have to live their lives or I would send them to jail. They'd think I was a nutcase. But I think they're a nutcase for, for doing the exact same thing to all these other people that they've never met. And I think the more and more people that start seeing that they own themselves and they control their own lives and they don't need politicians in some far-off city bossing them around that know nothing about their lives, the world's going to be a better place. And Bitcoin is an incredibly powerful tool to liberate people to be able to do that. And that's why I got so excited about Bitcoin Amazing. as well. And now look, you've, you've walked the walk. I mean, you've been out of the States for 10 years. Uh, this is not empty talk. You lived in Japan. I've seen you on a video speaking of fluent Japanese at, at some Bitcoin conference. You've now renounced your United States citizenship. Why did you renounce your U.S. citizenship? Give us the background on that. Yeah, to be clear, I, d I don't really believe in the idea of citizenship, period. So if it was possible to live in the world without that sort of thing, that, that would be my ideal world. But in the U.S., the U.S. government, as a, as a businessman and a business owner, 
they bother you no matter where you go in the world and they demand all these forms and reporting and, and yeah, they demand money, but I, I don't like paying them money because they use it for things that I don't approve of. But I think, to be honest, I think the filling out all the forms and the paperwork and the lost time that I have to spend on all their forms, I probably dislike that even more because it just puts me in a bad mood week after week after I'm working on it to like figure out how much money I have to pay them and how much reporting I have to do. And it is a giant amount of work. You know, I, when I renounced my U.S. citizenship, I hadn't been living in the U.S. for about eight years. Yet I still had to spend, you know, tens of thousands of dollars and, you know, hundreds of pages worth of tax reporting paperwork every single year for someone who's not even living there. And it, it was just uh, an incredible burden. And then when I discovered Bitcoin, I realized I was going to have a whole bunch more paperwork that I was going to have to be filing with them when I started making all these investments and doing that sort of thing. And I didn't want to deal with any of it. So uh, that was kind of the, the final straw that broke the camel's back there. And I was lucky enough to be able to, I guess, escape the burden of my U.S. citizenship. And on that note, we're going to break this into a two-part episode so that you have some time to let all of that knowledge sink in. Make sure you subscribe on iTunes so you can hear part two of our interview with Roger Ver as soon as it drops. Show you around, give you a taste of business, you know? <laughs>